Super Bowl 24 is considered by most people to be the most lopsided Super Bowl in history. It was played on January 28, 1990, between the San Francisco 49ers and the Denver Broncos. And I bet many of you even remember watching this game. The final score was 55 to 10. Now, in football, that is a blowout. I mean, that is a rout. That is absolutely a steamroll. If you lost 55 to 10, I mean, you, you got it handed to you. 55 points is the most points ever scored by one team in Super Bowl history. 45-point margin of victory, that is the largest margin of victory in Super Bowl history. In fact, the winning team, the 49ers, they scored eight touchdowns in that game, which is the most touchdowns scored by any football team in Super Bowl history, in any Super Bowl ever played. That is why it's considered to this day the most lopsided victory in Super Bowl history. Now, like every Super Bowl, there was a lot of hype around this game. I mean, people lined up for a long time just to get tickets. There was, there was so much talk, so much anticipation. This game drew a worldwide audience. Both teams, they showed up to play. That, that is for sure. But once it started, if you watch the game, it just wasn't much of a game. In fact, many have argued that this game was over before it ever started. That's how um, outmatched the Denver Broncos were on this day. Now, if you were a 49ers fan back in 1990, then this had to have been like the greatest day of your life. I mean, you wanted the Denver Broncos to get blown out. You did not want this to be close. You celebrated every single touchdown, every single first down, every single extra point. You celebrated it like crazy. You wanted the whole world to know that you were cheering for the Broncos. You wanted the 49ers to spike the ball and do an end zone dance every time they scored. The arm pumping you did on that day, the high-fiving you did with family and friends in the room or if you were at the game, it was all just a natural reaction to the absolute stomp that the 49ers put on the Broncos. You also had this feeling that all that trash talking that the, 40, that the, uh, the Broncos did, all the scheming, all the planning, everything that they tried to do to beat the 49ers that day, it just did not work. And that's why it's the most lopsided Super Bowl victory ever. But I can tell you, that victory right there pales. It absolutely pales in comparison to the blowout, to the absolute routing that's going to happen, to the steamroll, lopsided victory that Jesus will deliver to the devil and his team one day. You know, we've been studying our way through the book of Revelation, and what has been made very clear over these last couple of chapters is that we have a real adversary. We've been learning all about him. This adversary in the book of Revelation in its apocalyptic literature and style, this, this adversary is called the dragon. And John didn't want us to make any mistakes. He said, just so you know who I'm talking about, the dragon is Satan himself. And this dragon, Satan, as we've learned, he has one big objective in this world. And what is it? It is to lead the whole world astray. Other places in the Bible calls this dragon or Satan the liar, calls him a schemer, calls him a deceiver, a murderer. He is described as a roaring lion that, that, that prowls around looking for somebody to devour. This dragon, Satan, he was once an angel who wanted to be like God, but now he is determined to keep all of us from God. 
And we ask the question, how does he do that? How does he go about trying to lead the whole world astray? Well, Revelation gives us those answers too. You see, Satan has two really big strategies. He's got lots of schemes, but he's got two really big strategies that we learn about in the book of Revelation to lead the whole world astray. He works through the influences of godless governments, and he is the creator of false religions. He uses these two powerful strategies in an effort to enslave and keep billions of people away from knowing God. But what we are learning as well is that one day Jesus is going to return and he is going to absolutely obliterate the devil and his team. They will be, it will be the most lopsided victory in the history of everything. It really won't even be much of a fight. Essentially, that right there is what Revelation chapter 17 through 20 is all about. God is about to open a can on the devil and his entire team. And we, the church, we who are saved, who have been victorious, we will stand on the sideline when all this happens and we will celebrate, we will sing, and we will dance when it does. And that may sound a little bit odd, but trust me, we want this. Trust me, we want God to do this. Everything that we've learned in Revelation we want God to do it. We want the fire of God's wrath to rain down on the devil and all of his allies and everyone else who sided with him. When it actually happens, we will be glad. And, and, and let me explain that by first asking you a question. Who in their right mind would want a pusillanimous God? Now, full disclosure, pusillanimous is a brand new word for me. I, I learned it here recently, and I looked it up. What did it mean? And I was kind of shocked when I saw the meaning. Pusillanimous is an adjective, and it's used to describe somebody who lacks courage. So the question, who would want a pusillanimous God? Who would want a God that lacks courage? Mark Buchanan tells um, a story about a, a man he knows who had a younger brother who had Down syndrome. And the story he shares is about when these two brothers were, were kids and his brother that had Down syndrome was being picked on by some bullies. Here's the story. He writes, one day when the boys were young, some kids surrounded um, his brother and started calling him names, shoving him from one side to the other. His round, thick-set face grew taunt with fear and bewilderment. The older brother, watching this, was at first afraid, but then he got angry. Good, right, and angry. He wasn't physically big, and he was badly outnumbered in this fight. But in his anger, he grew and his strength multiplied and he waded right in there and he whipped every single one of those boys who was picking on his brother. And we hear that story and we're like, yes, absolutely, good for him. Yes, he took it to those boys and that's what needed to happen. And my question is, why do stories like this, why do they resonate with us? They resonate with us because there is something right. There is something clean. There is something noble. Deep down inside of all of us, it says, good for you. Way to go. That was the right thing to do. Those boys had it coming. They got the whooping that they deserved. And we were glad that it happened the way it did. Now, we know 
that had the older brother in this story, had he not rushed in to help his little brother with Down syndrome, had he not done that, we would have viewed him as what? We'd have said, you coward. Why did you stand up for your brother? We would have said, why didn't you do something? We would have said, how could you be so pusillanimous? So who in their right mind would ever want a pusillanimous God? A God who sees people who are being brutalized by Satan, the bully of this world, and does nothing. Why would we want that? No, I want a God who's gone to wade right into the middle of our enemies and whoop them all. That's the kind of God that I want. And trust me, God will do just that. He is going to give them a whooping that they never thought they could ever receive. And trust me, we want this to happen. And when it does, we will be glad about it. That, my friends, is Revelation chapter 17 through 20. Now, obviously, we're not going to read all four of those chapters of the book of Revelation in their entirety today in this one sermon. So I'm going to be doing quite a bit of summarizing. Now, with that, though, I'm going to encourage you to go back and read all four chapters um, at 17, 18, 19, and 20 on your own and really start to dive in deep and use this sermon today as kind of a springboard to help you better understand these four chapters because they are awesome. We're just not going to take the time to read them all today. But what I do want to do is I want to use this one sermon today to show you kind of the complete sequence of this incredibly one-sided, hugely lopsided victory that God has over Satan. Because in these four chapters, Satan is going to meet his doom. And trust me, when you read these four chapters, there's going to be a little bit inside of you that spiritually speaking is going to want to spike the ball when you read some of this stuff. You're like, yes, couldn't stop God. Oh, look what God did. Oh, he ran right over them. They couldn't stop him. And we're going to spike the ball and do an end zone dance. There's going to be parts of these four chapters. You're going to feel that way on the inside. Hey, if you haven't done so yet, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. Um, that's where we're going to be spend, starting our time together. Revelation chapter 17. We're going to work in our way through chapter 20. Now, as you find that, let me remind you that last week we ended in chapter 16, and you might recall that John sees these seven angels with seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out, and this was, you know, a snapshot of the complete future as another glimpse of the second coming of Christ and the end of time. Now, right after that, we move into Revelation chapter 17, and the vision's going to shift a little bit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her, in her hand filled with abominable things and, her, and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of all the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Well, that's kind of disturbing if you just want to be honest about it. 
There's a lot of imagery there. What, what is John being shown by this angel? Well, he tells us in verse one, the angel said what? I am gonna show you the punishment of this wicked woman here in Revelation chapter 17. So the first question is, who in the world is this wicked woman? Because all of chapter 17 and all of chapter 18 are all about her. So who is she? Well, the title alone that's given to her in the Bible, that pretty much clues us in that she's not a member of God's team. In fact, the angel is describing her punishment. So should we, know, we know already this woman is not on the side of holiness. She's not walking with God. What becomes crystal clear as you read these two chapters is that she is actually a flat-out enemy of God's people. Tattooed across her forehead is the name Babylon the Great. Now, we've read the title Babylon the Great already several times in our study through the book of Revelation. We, we read it back in chapter 14. We read it again in chapter 16. So this is not our first encounter with this conversation of God punishing Babylon the Great. So this woman and Babylon the Great, they are connected. They are, in a way, the same. So what did John see in verse 6? He said, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. This woman, she's got a lot of blood on her hands. She is directly involved with the martyrs of the church. She is responsible for those who have died for their faith in Jesus. Now, as you move into chapter 18, as God is punishing her, we read this announcement from another angel. Look at chapter 18, verse 2. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Boy, you read that and you go, wow, this lady sure gets around. She seems to be well known by a lot of people. Who is this woman? I think perhaps our best clue is found in Revelation chapter 17, verse 18. What does it say? The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Okay, wait a minute. So this woman, well, she isn't actually a woman. In fact, she isn't a person at all. In fact, she is a symbol for something else. And in this case, we're actually told. We don't want there to be any confusion. She is actually a symbol for a great city. So if we take everything that we already know about this woman, and we understand that Revelation is full of symbols and full of imagery, it's apocalyptic literature. We take everything we already know about about this woman and Babylon the Great in Revelation, plus all the details we learn here in chapter 17 and 18, it leads us to one conclusion. This woman is a metaphor for Rome. The angel even says what? She is a great city. That's who she is. It has to be Rome. And that, my friends, absolutely fits the context of the book of Revelation. This is God letting the church know in this vision that their suffering will not last forever. Now remember, the Christians in this day are being heavily persecuted by the godless Roman government. But God has never taken his eyes off of them. He knows the persecution that they have been under. And this is God saying, all of you, I want you to know something. I will handle Rome. 
They will pay for the blood of all the Christian martyrs. They will pay for putting my son Jesus on the cross. They will pay for everything they've done. They will not get away with this forever. Oh, you can rest assured, I will handle Rome. And this would have been really exciting news to the first century Christians who would have received this revelation from John. Rome, you gotta understand, we're quite a bit removed from Rome, not only by time, but by culture. But back in this day, back in John's day, Rome was very much the center of the world. And what God allows John to see in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18 is a vision of Rome's future destruction. Here's a few verses that talk about it. Look at chapter 17, verse 16. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now that's pretty gross imagery. But that's what John sees in Rome's future. The city will burn. The city will be destroyed. Rome will fall. That's what he is seeing. That's the metaphor. That's the imagery. This wicked woman, she will be cast down. If you jump over to the next chapter, Revelation chapter 18, verse 9, it has another description of Rome's demise. When the kings of the earth who had committed adultery with her, with Rome, and shared her luxury, See the smoke of her burning. They will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. This wicked woman, this Babylon the great, this Rome. Well, this is John letting the church know in this vision, Rome won't stand forever. No one in John's day could have fathomed that. Not even the Christians of John's day could have fathomed this idea, this concept, that Rome would fall. You know, it wasn't really all that long ago in the, in the history of the world that the Titanic was built. And when the Titanic was built, what was it known as? It was known as the unsinkable ship because nobody in that day, a little over 100 years ago, could ever fathom that this mighty ship, the Titanic, would ever sink. But what happened? It sank on its maiden voyage. That's kind of how people felt about Rome back in John's day. <clears throat> Rome's not going anywhere. What could ever happen to Rome? Who could ever overpower Rome? See, back in this day, Rome was called the eternal city. There was a saying that was commonly known back in John's day, and it went like this. As long as the Colosseum stands, Rome shall stand. When the Colosseum falls, Rome will fall. When Rome falls, the world will fall. That's how people felt about it. But you see, when John wrote Revelation, you gotta understand this. When he wrote Revelation, the great pillared Roman forum still dominated the city. But if you were to visit there today, it's just a shell it's just a memory. It's got a few ruins. It's not, did not last. The Roman Colosseum, well, it still towered over the city in John's day. Today, what is it? It's nothing but a fascinating set of ruins and a wonderful tourist attraction. When John wrote Revelation, the Circus Maximus was still filling up with 150,000 spectators. Today, it's pretty much unrecognizable ruins. We rely on artist renditions to kind of give us an idea of what it looks like 
or would have looked like. The temple of Jupiter, well, it had a gold gilted roof style, dazzled in the sun. That was standing tall when John wrote Revelation. Today, nothing but some simple ruins of that mighty temple is left to see. You see, Rome was very much alive, enjoying this undisputed sovereignty, virtually unmatched in its dominance. Nobody ever envisioned today that Rome wasn't Rome. But in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, John gets a snapshot of the future that nobody else could see. A snapshot that nobody could fathom of how some 300 years off into the future, you know, barbarian hordes would come in and they would pillage Rome. The empire that was so powerful would just become a distant memory and its great buildings knocked over and turned to rubble and later would be viewed as ruins. For the first century Christians who were being persecuted by the hands of the Roman government, just the idea that God was going to take care of Rome and handle them, that would have been exciting news. Hey, they're not going to get away with this. But do you know what else Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is? It's not just an announcement that Rome is going to get what's coming to them. This is also God calling the church to holiness. This is God calling the church, and I would say calling us to holiness. And here's what I mean. Look at chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Do you know what John is saying to the church? He's saying, church, listen to me. Don't be seduced by this evil woman. You all stay faithful to God. Now, to, to you know, the fall of Rome, to John and all the first century Christians who had read this revelation, that was something off into the future. But to us today, we look back and see it as history. So John's seeing a snapshot of what will happen about 300 years later. We look at it as, as history. But this call to holiness is exactly the same. Whether you are a first century Christian living in Rome or you are a 21st century Christian living in the United States of America. You see, I see a lot of similarities between the United States today and the ancient city of Rome. I could list off many of the similarities, but I'll just simply say it as this. Rome was the world power in John's day and the United States is the world power in our day. Church, the warning and the calls are the same. Don't be seduced by this woman. Everywhere that we look today, there is an opportunity for us to sin with her. One day, the United States may also have a mighty fall. I pray not, but can you name one empire? Can you name one world power that has stood since the beginning of time? Our faith can never be in our economy. It can never be in our military. It cannot be in our leaders. It cannot be in our homes. It cannot be in our careers or the thousands of things that we enjoy living in this great country. Our faith cannot be wrapped up in those things. 
This is a call to holiness, church. This is a call to the church to come out and be separate from the way the world sees things and thinks. This is a call for the church to come out of her, set ourselves apart, and do not share in her sins. So chapter 17 and 18, God deals with Rome, and this would have been great news to the first century Christians. Now, as we move into chapter 19, we read about this great celebration in heaven. John's vision shifts away from the punishment that's going to happen to Rome, and he shifts the attention back to heaven and the end of time, and we learn that the believers, all those who have been faithful, all those who are not seduced by this woman, all those who did not sin with her that were holy people victorious till the end. They get invited to what the Bible calls the great wedding feast of the Lamb. That's where the vision shifts now. We're back in the end of time. Let's read it together. Look at chapter 19 verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Oh, this scene of the wedding feast of the Lamb, it is loaded with imagery. And if you are fairly familiar with the New Testament, you picked up on some of this imagery in these verses. Because all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is alluded to and talked about as a groom. And the church is called what? The bride, the bride of Christ. And it speaks of how Jesus, the groom, is gonna come back and be with his bride. And there will be this great wedding feast in heaven. Revelation chapter 19 is speaking about that moment. We are the bride, the church, the faithful, and we have made ourselves ready. We made it to the wedding. And this is what John sees in his vision. We are waiting for Jesus to come at the second coming. And we are expecting at this wedding feast, we're expecting for the DJ, so to speak, to spin the lights and start the music and make this big announcement. The groom has arrived. And we all turn to the door and we, we're waiting for the groom to come at the second coming. And we are expecting Jesus, so to speak, to walk across that dance floor in this beautiful brand new tuxedo and come and dance with his bride. But what does the vision show us? The groom has arrived, all right, in the second coming. But he looks more like a champion warrior than a groom. Look at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
What is John saying? John is seeing the return of Christ and with him the fury of God. And what follows with Jesus is the most lopsided battle in the history of everything. Do you remember the dragon and his two beasts that we learned about earlier in our study? One of the beasts is from the sea and the other beast is from the earth and how these two beasts represent godless governments and false religions, these strategies that the devil used to lead the whole world astray. These two beasts, they show up again right here in chapter 19 and it's not even a fight. They and all of those who have received the mark of the beast, the Bible tells us that that they get thrown into the lake of fire. They are no match for Jesus on this day. Look at Revelation 19 verse 20. The two of them were thrown alive, these two beasts, into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's full of imagery. It's full of symbolism. It's this grand story that communicates these incredible truths. That's what's going on here. And the truth is, this is no match for Jesus. These two beasts in their, in their strength and in their mighty power and how they've led so many astray, they are thrown quickly into the lake of fire. It was not even a contest. It was not even a battle. That when this mighty warrior, this champion Jesus shows up in the second coming, they cannot stand up to him. That's how lopsided this victory is. So what have we learned so far? We've learned that this wicked woman gets destroyed and the church spikes the ball. Next, we learn that these two beasts and all of their followers, they are thrown into the lake of fire. And what do we as the church do? We spike the ball and we do an end zone dance. That's what we do. Next in line for God's wrath, you guessed it, it's the devil himself. We come to Revelation chapter 20 and we get to read about the destruction, the demise of our greatest enemy, the devil Now, let me just tell you this. The first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20 are probably the most disputed verses in the entire Bible. I have no doubt. I don't expect today that I'll be solving all the differences in interpretation in the next five minutes or so. In fact, I am confident that I will not be. But let's read it together first, and then let's look at it quickly. Chapter 20, verse one, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from, be- from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast nor its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no, more, has no power over them, 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse seven, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In, in number, they are like the sand on the shore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right? Hopefully, just in reading that, you're probably scratching your head a little bit. You're probably saying, well, I can see why there's a lot of different interpretations. Maybe some light bulbs are going off. It's like, oh, that's why somebody said such and such that one time. Can I draw your attention to the very last verse that we read? Look at verse 10. What happens in verse 10? The devil gets thrown into the lake of fire. What was that? No, no, really. What, what happens in verse 10? You can go ahead and say it out loud there at home. The devil gets thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, one more time. Just humor me because I want to make sure that all of us understand where all of this is leading. The devil gets thrown into the lake of fire. And I want you to please keep that in mind. Because no matter how you interpret the previous nine verses before that, all of them have the same result ultimately. The devil gets what's coming. And it's an incredibly large, lopsided victory of God. In fact, it's not even much of a fight. Because the devil can't stand up to God's strength and his sovereignty and his wrath. So really, no matter how you interpret these 10 verses, they all lead to the same conclusion. The devil is going into the lake of the fire. Now, the biggest interpretive struggle in, the, in chapter 20 is this. What do you do with the thousand years language? Okay, how do you interpret that? How do you understand this thousand years? Well, let me just tell you, there is one uh, really popular interpretation. And, and it goes like this. Jesus destroys the devil, and this is how it happens. That uh, the destruction of the devil happens after a thousand years during which Satan is bound and Jesus rules with the Christian faithful. That seems to be consistent with Revelation chapter 20, verses one through six. Some Christians believe that this millennium, this thousand years, it is a literal 365,000 days of where Christ will reign as a global king over the earth. And that reign began the day of his return. Now, the Christian faithful, the Christian faithful who physically resurrected will be at his side all while, while Satan serves this 365,000 day sentence in the abyss. Now at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released and he will rally his troops for this great battle and uh, his goal is to defeat Christ. But you know what? It just doesn't work out for him. He is actually defeated by Christ very quickly after he is released from the abyss. And at that time, God establishes the new heaven and the new earth. 
Now, I don't know for sure, but I believe that that is probably the most widely accepted, the most popular interpretation of these 10 verses of Scripture. It's certainly what most of our books and movies have been built upon, an interpretation that kind of follows that timeline. I'll just be honest with you. If you land there, praise God, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. I have no problem with that. Let me tell you where I land, though. I believe that the thousand years like many of the other numbers in the book of Revelation, is, is very much figurative. Um, it just simply represents a long period of time between Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1 and, and, his res, and, and his return at the end of time. And I believe that it describes this season known as the church age in between those two things. So this figurative number of a thousand years began when Christ ascended into heaven in Acts chapter one, and it will be over when Jesus Christ comes at his second coming. The time frame in between is known as the church age. This is what we are living in right now. During this time of the church age, Christ reigns from his throne in heaven, as we've seen back in Revelation chapter five, and with all the Christian faithful, who have already experienced spiritual resurrection in heaven. Basically, every single Christian who died, every single martyr, everybody who dies in Christ uh, during this figurative thousand years, they are already with Christ, reigning with him where he is. Now, Satan is bound spiritually during this church age. The Bible speaks about Satan being bound. And we ask the question, how is he bound? I certainly believe that Satan is bound by the preaching of the gospel, okay? It's preachers, it's Christians who are spreading the gospel, the good news. It's the influence of the church. And the more influence the church has, the more that Satan is bound and not free to go about and do and wreak havoc because the church stands against him. And so he is in that way bound and he is not free to do everything that he wants to do. He wants to go deceiving the nations, but the church stands in opposition and we bind him up. And as the gospel flourishes, Satan's strongholds diminish and the dominion of darkness really suffers. So friends, you hear me talk about how important it is that we preach the the true, full counsel of God, that we don't water down God's word, that we don't compromise in our faith and we don't compromise in our convictions. Why is that? Because it has a binding effect on Satan. It makes him less powerful. He cannot influence as many. And as we snatch people from his claws, he loses his army. And in that sense, Satan is very much bound in this figurative thousand year church age between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. Well, right before Christ's second coming, I do believe that there's evidence that Satan will be unleashed a little bit more. In other words, things will get bad. Um, He will succeed in an even greater deception of the nations and he will gather up his people. They will receive the mark of the beast. In other words, they will be stamped by by him. They, They are his team. There will, I believe, be an uprising, if you will, right before the end. But then, in an instant... We will see them all destroyed by fire from heaven as Jesus returns to the, and inaugurates the new heaven and the new earth. That, that's kind of where I land. Now, what view is correct? There are other views too. I'm just kind of giving you where I'm at and what the most popular one is. I acknowledge, I don't, I don't interpret it the way the most popular way is. But what view is correct? 
Um, both of them, quite honestly, can be backed up with scripture. Uh, I'll tell you that I'm not willing to die on either one of those hills. I'm not even sure, and this might shock you, I'm not even sure it's all that important, to be quite honest with you. It's definitely not worth fighting over and causing division and disunity and disharmony within the church. It's certainly not worth all that. Here's what I do believe is important. The devil takes an eternal swim in the lake of fire. Did you hear me, church? No matter how you interpret these 10 verses, they all lead you to the same conclusion. The devil is gonna take an an eternal swim in the lake of fire. Our enemy is destroyed by Jesus. It's an incredibly lopsided victory. So what do we read in these four chapters? The wicked woman, which is Rome, destroyed. The dragon's two beasts, all of his strategies and influence, destroyed. The devil himself, gone. And the church spikes the ball as the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. What's left to do? Jesus is going to destroy death itself. Look at chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written, was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Death is our universal enemy. Just just this week, two dearly loved people from our own new life family. They pass from this earth. They pass from it through death. And praise God that both of them were sealed by the living God. Praise God that both of them right now, without a shadow of a doubt, are in the presence of Jesus. One out of every one human being dies. Do you know that? One out of every one human being dies. Death is actually our sin's worst consequence. For all of those whose names have been written in the book of life, they will be spared from a second death. In fact, we'll never experience, nor will we ever have to go through again the pain or the suffering or the mourning or anything that is associated with losing someone that we love ever again. Why is that? Because in the end, we win. And then what Jesus finally does is he destroys death once and for all. We win. You know, like John does here in the end of Revelation, here that we've just read today, I am calling each and every one of you to live lives of holiness. Don't be seduced by the world. Stand strong in your faith in Jesus Christ, the devil, his demons, all of his schemes, and all those who have been seduced by him, they lose, guaranteed. It is a lopsided loss. You, however, everybody that I'm talking to right now who's watching me, I'm calling you to holiness. I'm calling each of you to be victorious 
to the very end. The Bible says, he who has ears, let him hear. And I pray that you hear that today. Next week, I give you a little heads up. It's all good news from here. Dear God, I thank you for this time that we have together to study the book of Revelation. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of wrath and I thank you that you are a God of love. Lord, I'm grateful that you're not a pusillanimous God, a cowardice God. I'm so thankful, God, that that is not you. And Lord, that is not how you made us either. Lord, I pray for those who are watching this sermon today, Lord, who are praying with me right now, that Lord, you will build inside of them a courage that says, I wanna live for you. A faith will start to grow, Lord. The way that says, I believe, and I pray, Lord, that something, something great begins to start in their heart right now. Lord, for those of us that are already believers who are staying faithful to the end, Lord, I pray you give us strength. I pray, Lord, you give us wisdom, Lord. I pray you help us stand firm in a world that does not want us to stand firm in you. Lord, I pray you help us be your ambassadors. Lord, help us bind the devil more and more by the preaching of your word, by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord. Lord, I just thank you so much in advance that you are the groom and we get to be the bride. And one day, we're gonna see you coming in the clouds for us. Oh, Lord, please hurry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.